Good morning. And happy Mother's Day again. It's good to see you this morning. I'm reminded of an old story that uh, mom got up and she heard the mixer running on Mother's Day. And she heard the sink running and water was pouring. And she kind of halfway peered into the kitchen. She just kind of saw a haze and all of this. And bowls and mixing bowls were scattered everywhere and spatulas and spoons and the mixer and the water. And, and then the kids brought out, out to her what they had made. She said it was the best jello ever. So, <laughs> uh, you can see on the screen that I want to focus in on a lady today, Queen Esther for Mother's Day. So uh, you can take your Bibles and turn to the book of Esther. Going to be making reference to several chapters. Kind of just going to tell the story, the main story out of the book of Esther this morning. Esther is the 17th book in your Old Testament. It is the final book of history in your Old Testament. When you get through the first 17 books of the Old Testament, you have completed the entire time period of the Old Testament. All the writings after that, after Esther, when you get to Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all the major and minor prophets, everything that comes after Esther fits into the time period of the first 17 books. Okay? So Esther pretty much completes the Old Testament time period, you might say, that we have have recorded here in Scripture. Now, having said that, let's switch gears a minute. When the United States-led coalition invaded Iraq in 2003, the U.S. military developed a set of playing cards to help their troops identify the, the most wanted members of Saddam Hussein's government. These playing cards were called personality identification playing cards. Each playing card contained the wanted person's name and their picture if they had it. The highest ranking cards, beginning with the aces and kings, were used for the people at the top of the most wanted list. So obviously the ace of spades was Saddam Hussein. The aces of clubs and hearts were his two sons, Kusei and Uday, respectively. The ace of diamonds was Saddam's presidential secretary, forgive me for this pronunciation, Abid Hamid Mahmoud Al-Tikriti. I didn't even stumble that time. I practiced, okay? Whether I said it right or not, I don't know. So they had these personality identification playing cards. Now, troops in armies have played cards and used playing cards as far back as the Civil War. But these troops would often play cards to pass the time, seeing the names, the faces, the titles of the wanted Iraqis during their games, help these soldiers and Marines familiarize themselves with the enemy in case they encountered these wanted individuals out in the field. Now, how in that world does that apply to the book of Esther? Well, I want you to imagine that we've got a deck of personality identification playing cards for the book of Esther. Because we have a king, Ahasuerus, otherwise known as Xerxes. We have a queen, actually two queens. We have the queen of diamonds, Vashti, 
And we've got the Queen of Hearts, Esther. We've got a joker called Haman. And we've got an ace, Mordecai. Okay? Maybe just a way for you to remember the story. The book of Esther is one of the most fascinating books in the entire Bible. 50,000 Jews had chose to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Cyrus, king of Persia, allowed them to do that. But there were still a lot of Jews that stayed behind and became a part of the Persian culture. Mordecai was one of those. He lived in the city of Susa. Susa was one of the four capital cities of the Persian Empire. He lived there along with his daughter, Hadassah, also known as Esther, his adopted daughter. So living as a Jew here in the middle of the Persian Empire, that wasn't easy. Carried some risk with it. The risk of racial prejudice, the risk of death. The king at the time in Persia was Ahasuerus, also again known as Xerxes. He was famous for his extravagance and his recklessness. And we'll get to him just a little bit later. But there's some important points I, I really want you to remember from the book of Esther. One is God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. It's the only book in the Bible where the name of God is not mentioned. Not at all. And yet his presence can be felt in every chapter and every verse. The theme of Esther is God, once again, rescuing his people, Israel. Just as you see over and over again in the Old Testament, here is another example. Satan is out to wipe out the promise of the Messiah. He's out to kill all of the chosen people, the Jewish people. But God is going to rescue them. And then I think you're going to be amazed how the story of Esther relates to you, to your story. Because I think the application is just impossible to miss. So when we come to Esther chapter 1, here's how it begins, the first eight verses. It took place in the days of Ahasuerus that the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days, as King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne, which was in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his princes and attendants, the army officers of Persia and Media, the nobles, the princes of his provinces being in his presence. And he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed... The king gave a banquet lasting seven days for all the people that were present in Susa, the capital, from the greatest to the least, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were hangings of fine white and violet linen, held by cords of fine purple linen on silver rings and marble columns and couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels of various kinds. And the royal wine was plentiful according to the king's bounty. And the drinking was done according to the law. There was no compulsion. For so the king had given orders to each official of his household that he should do according to the desires of each person. Is that going to lead to a good thing? 
I think not. All right. So Xerxes reigned in Persia from 485 to 465 B.C., about a 20-year reign. His kingdom stretched, as it says here, from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. So a large kingdom. During the third year of his reign, he threw this gigantic celebration to celebrate and showcase his vast wealth. It lasted six months. Wow, 180 days. After which, he held a huge banquet that lasted seven more days. An all-you-can-eat, all-you-can-drink event. It was so big that they had to hold it outside, and he instructed his servants to give his guests all the wine they wanted in whatever way they wanted it. So Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, he was a party animal, a big drinker, okay? As one man said, he was the kind of guy who says, 24 beers in a case, 24 hours in a day, coincidence? I think not. Well, after this 187-day celebration, the king was drunk, you think? And so, as most people do under the influence, he did something stupid. People tend to do things they regret when they're hammered, so this is what Xerxes did. He called for his wife, the queen, Queen Vashti, the queen of diamonds that we talked about, and wants her to come in. He wants to show her off. The real issue was he wanted to brag about how great he was in having such a fine wife, such a beautiful wife. But Vashti, if you go ahead and read the rest of this chapter, Vashti would have nothing to do with it. She was not going to be shown off like a piece of furniture or a piece of meat. And that infuriated Xerxes in his drunken rage, and he burned with anger. His pride was pierced. His ego was deflated. I, I mean, his personal embarrassment was just off the charts. So he thinks, I'm... This isn't going to go unpunished. So he consults his lawyers and his wise men to find out what could be done to Queen Vashti. And they told him she had not only wronged the king, but that she had put every man in the kingdom in jeopardy because their wives would be encouraged to do what Vashti did and attempt the same thing. So they encouraged him to issue a decree and have Queen Vashti banished from ever being in his presence again. And he did it. He issued the edict, and women throughout the kingdom then obviously would honor and respect their husbands. He issued the edict, Queen Vashti was banished, and every man was king of his own castle again. So they thought. That's chapter 1. So we come to chapter 2. Four years go by, and King Xerxes realized he didn't have a trophy wife anymore. In fact, he didn't have a wife of any kind. And he realized the stupidity of kicking out such a beautiful queen out of the palace. So he is sober now, and he's depressed, and he's lonely. So his advisors sense that, and they come up with this idea to cheer him up. They're going to have the king get a new wife, okay, and in order to do that, 
they share with him the idea of having a beauty pageant to find the king a new queen. And he consents. And so they go and get a guy by the name of Haggai, not Haggai the prophet, but Haggai. And he goes throughout the kingdom and he tries to round up all the most beautiful women in the kingdom to bring into the king's harem, you might say. And his job was to oversee a series of beauty treatments. How many of you women want a man overseeing your beauty treatments? But evidently, he, he knew what he was doing, okay? Twelve months of beauty treatments. Six months with oil and myrrh, and six months with perfumes and cosmetics. Well, when this is going on, there is there in the city of Susa, the ace that we mentioned, Mordecai. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. He had a cousin named Hadassah that he had brought up as his own daughter. We also know her as Esther. So when the announcement of the king's order for the beauty contest went out, Esther, being a beautiful woman, was brought to the palace. And Haggai was immediately impressed with her. He assigned her seven maids to care for her needs and gave orders for her to be given the best place in the harem. And when the day came for Esther to be brought in to see the king, he was instantly smitten. And to make a long story short, he chose her. He put a crown on her head and made her his new queen. At which time he decided to give another banquet and proclaim a national holiday. And you might be thinking, I hope he doesn't get drunk again. But he doesn't. It's a phenomenal story. The kind of fairy tale romance you might find in Cinderella or, or Camelot or My Fair Lady, Sleeping Beauty, whatever. But there's more going on here than just a good old fashioned fairy tale romance. Who's holding all the cards? God is. Who's writing the story? God is. So this is no coincidence. This was no accident that a Jewish girl in exile found herself now wearing the crown of the Queen of Persia. That is not an accident. And by the way, at the end of chapter 2, Mordecai, our ace, hears about a plot of two of the king's officials. They're plotting to kill the king. So Mordecai sends word to Esther, who relates it to Xerxes, giving credit to Mordecai for the information. And Xerxes investigates the plot, finds out it's true, and he has those two officials hung on a gallows. So we come to chapter 3, when we meet the joker, Haman. Not long after the coronation of this new queen, King Xerxes decided to promote one of his officials, a man by the name of Haman. Haman was the son of Hamadetha the Agagite. An Agagite, yeah. Do you remember King Agag? All right, yeah. First uh, Samuel 15. Saul, the king, was supposed to kill King Agag and get rid of all the Amalekites. But he didn't, all right? So his failure to obey the Lord is still having consequences all these years later because Haman is one of the descendants of those Amalekites. 
You ever wonder about the impact of the sins that you commit and how far-reaching the effects might be? Whenever we sin, it doesn't just affect us. It has far-reaching consequences that we may never know of. Well, Xerxes elevates Haman to the position of prime minister of Persia, a position that required everyone at the king's gate to kneel before him. But Mordecai, who visited the palace every day because Esther was there, Mordecai refused to kneel before Haman. And when Haman saw that Mordecai wouldn't bow down to honor him, he became enraged. So much so, when he found out who Mordecai's people were, the Jews, he decided to kill not only Mordecai, but all the Jewish people. He was a bona fide racist. He hated the Jewish people so much that he went to the king and he had a proposal to have all of them killed and he even offered 10,000 talents of silver to help get the job done. Now, I don't know if this is true or not, but according to the Greek historian Herodotus, the annual income for the entire Persian Empire was only 15,000 talents of silver. So Haman, if that's true, was offering a payoff for killing the Jews that was two-thirds of the annual budget for the entire kingdom. Wow. His strategy was to have a special day when it would be open season on the Jewish people and anyone, anywhere could kill Jews on that day. Well, King Xerxes told him to keep his money, and he could do whatever he wanted to do with the Jews. So he issues the edict. According to the law of the Medes and the Persians, when the king issued a law, when he issued an edict, it could not be repealed, not even by the king. He couldn't take it back. That was their law. So the edict is issued to have the Jews killed on the 13th day of the 12th month. Now imagine being a Jew and reading the edict. What are you going to think? It's over. We've got this much time left. And then we're going to be killed. A law that could not be repealed. You ever faced an impossible situation? What you thought was impossible? Have you ever had an insurmountable circumstance that just showed up overnight? Have you ever felt like you were in a place where there was no way out? No way over? No way under? Just no way? Remember our Lord says, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So in chapter 4, we see the ace, Mordecai, again, because the plot to kill all the Jews reached the ears of Mordecai before even Queen Esther heard of it. She is also a Jew, but she has hidden her nationality, concealed that from the king, so King Xerxes has no idea that in issuing the edict, he just gave the death sentence for his queen. He doesn't know that. So Mordecai sends a messenger to Esther with the whole story and with a copy of the edict. She reads it. She sent word back that, hey, there's nothing I can do about this. I mean, no one can approach the king unless they've been called for. 
and the king hasn't called for me for over 30 days. But Mordecai sends word back and says, look, if you don't do something, God will save his people through someone else. But then he says, but who knows, but that you haven't come to a position of royalty for such a time as this. A key verse in the book of Esther, chapter 4 and verse 14. So Esther tells Mordecai to have all the Jews in the city of Susa fast and pray for three days, and she'll do the same. And then she said, and then I will go to the king, and if I perish, I perish, willing to die for her people. So in chapter 5, on the third day, Esther went in and stood in the inner court. She did not go into the king's throne room, but stood in a place where he could see her. And he saw her and was pleased and extended his golden scepter towards her, which meant she could come in with no fear of death. And she comes in and the king told her he would grant her anything she wanted, up to half the kingdom. She requested that she be allowed to have a banquet and that the king invite Haman. (laughs) Well, the king brought Haman in at once. And Esther has the banquet prepared, but for some reason, Esther doesn't point out Haman at that first banquet. And she requests to have another banquet the next night with Haman again being invited. In the meantime, whenever Haman would leave, he would still see Mordecai refusing to kneel or show him any respect. And so Haman had a gallows built that was 75 feet high on which he planned to hang Mordecai as soon as he could ask the king. Well, the night between the two banquets, for some reason, Xerxes couldn't sleep that night. So he asked for the book that recorded the history of his reign to be brought in. And as he read it, he found out about a murder plot against him that had been discovered by a man named... Mordecai. And so he asked what had been done to honor this man. And we, when he found out nothing had been done to, order, to honor Mordecai, he called for someone to come into him. And it just so happened that Haman was on his way in to ask for his blessing to execute Mordecai on the gallows that he had built. So the king asked Haman, what should be done for the man the king has decided to honor? What is Haman thinking? Who would the king want to honor more than me? So he gives this long list of great stuff that ought to be done. And so the king responds and says, Go out and do all of that at once for Mordecai, the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Well, Haman did it. Everything the king told him to do. He led Mordecai through the town on one of the king's horses and all of this kind of stuff, and then he rushed home. He was furious, and he was humiliated. But he had no sooner made it home until the king's men came to get him to go back to the banquet. So, we come to chapter 7, and the king again asked Esther what her request is, and repeated his promise to give her anything up to half of the kingdom. And she said, spare my people from being destroyed. And the king has no idea what she's talking about. And asks, where's the man who dares to do such a thing? 
And she points to Haman and said, the adversary and enemy is this vile Haman. And Haman is terrified. Probably looks for a Persian rug to hide under. All right. The king gets up in a rage. He leaves the room. Haman runs over to the queen to beg for his life. He trips and falls on top of the queen just as the king is coming back into the room. And now the king has seen enough. He's thinking, is he even going to molest the queen right here while she's with me in the house? And so the words had no sooner left the king's lips that his servants covered Haman's face. They seized him. They told the king about the gallows he had built. And Mordecai is hung on the gallows that he had built. Mordecai. Haman is hung on the gallows that he had built for Mordecai. Yeah. That's how the story ends. Except for the fact that, again, the king couldn't repeal the order to have the Jews killed. So he issues another edict. And this edict said that the Jews could defend themselves against their enemies. Which they did. Very successfully, I might say. And the Jews were saved. Now, all of that is historical narrative. What's the application? Well, remember that even though God's name was never mentioned in this book, he's in every chapter and every verse. He's holding the cards. He's in control. He's the one writing the story. And he is at work saving his son. Because if the devil has his way, all the Jews will be killed, which means what? No Jesus. No Jesus. Do you see how this story connects to you and me? How it applies? God was making sure that the day would come in Bethlehem when a virgin betrothed to a man by the name of Joseph, her name being Mary, would give birth to a son and they would call his name Jesus, for he would save his, his people from their sins. So God is at work protecting the promise of the Messiah. But also, another lesson. When you think the odds are stacked against you, when the deck is stacked against you, God's still in control. He's still on his throne. And he is still for you. And if God be for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him freely give us all things? All things. So what are you facing today that seems impossible to you? What are you facing today that seems insurmountable? What are you facing today that just seems unchangeable? And could it be that God is ready to use you and has brought you to that insurmountable, unchangeable, impossible obstacle that he's brought you to it for such a time as this? Will you allow God to work through you and use you in a mighty way? Women, if there's anything on Mother's Day that I think you can imitate from the story of Esther, not only her beauty, but her courage. Her courage. 
And she fulfilled God's purpose for such a time as this. Let's pray.